Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of June 25th through the 27th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Um, I'll say I had a pretty good uh, weekend. Friday night, I caught the In the Heights film in theaters, which we'll talk about later. Uh, Saturday, I got together with some friends to play Paper Match the Gathering. The first time in about, what, 15 months I've done that. Uh, and then Sunday, I caught up with another couple of friends. It is a pretty hot there. Sa- uh, thoughts go out to everyone you know, in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere who are going through a heat wave right now. Um, I know right now it's uh, pretty painful to actually try to record the podcast. I have to turn it off all my fans and everything. So let's try to get through this quickly. Um, on the box, box office side of things, things are pretty hot and spicy as well and pretty good for the box office. So let's hop into those numbers to break down what happened. So, in first place domestically, we have Universal's latest entry into the Fast Saga F9. It opened to $70 million in 4,179 theaters for a per-theater average of $16,761. This is the first film to cross the 4,000-theater mark post-pandemic, the first to open north of $50 million, and the first per-theater average to cross $15,000. The previous closest was Demon Slayer at $14,000. This is also on the high end of the predictions for how it would do this weekend, um, which most people had it somewhere in the $60 million range. So yeah, uh, definitely above above predictions there. Uh, we'll talk about what this means for future films in a little bit. Um, looking at day-to-day numbers, it had about $70 million on Thursday evening before uh, combined with Friday numbers getting to $29.8 million for Friday, uh, then dropped 25% to Saturday for $22.3 million and another 20% to $17.8 million on Sunday. Uh, compared to the uh, past two Fast and Furious films, Hobbs and Saw and F8, um, uh, for Hobbs and Saw, the drops went 13 from Friday to Saturday and 23 from Saturday to Sunday. Um, and then Fear of the Furious went from 30% Friday to Saturday and then 32% Saturday to Sunday. So the fact that uh, F9 is actually not dropping off uh, steeper from Saturday to Sunday is a little bit different. Um, you know, uh, Speaking of these older films, F9 did open above Hobbs and Saw, which had a $60 million opening weekend, while F8 opened a little bit higher at $98 million. Now, if you look at films outside of the Fast and Furious franchise, F9 actually had a higher opening opening weekend than any other film that opened in 2020, uh, here in the States at least. Even pre-pandemic, the highest opening film was uh, Sony's Bad Boys for Life at $62 million last January, followed by $58 million from Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, you'll need to go back to Rise of Skywalker in December 2019 at $177 million opening weekend for a higher opening total. Uh, Aeronationally, we've been covering F9's Aeronational rollout, but so far it's made $335 million in 45 territories, including this week with uh, $10.7 million opening in Mexico and $8.3 million in the United Kingdom. So it has a lifetime total of $405 million, which puts it within striking range of taking uh, Godzilla vs. Crown's title of highest-grossing Hollywood film away from them at $444 million. Uh, the big question is, of course, whether or not the family uh, can keep uh, the same audience next week. Uh, we saw it drop off pretty steeply in China with an 80-plus percent drop after poor reviews. On Rotten Tomatoes, it had a 60% from, from critics, 84% from audience, and B-plus on CinemaScore. In comparison, looking at the last two mainline hub, uh, Fast and Furious films, uh, F8 and F7, uh, it looks like uh, you know F... Uh, 
F8 uh, had a uh, 67% and then uh, 82% for Furious 7. But then the audience scores were actually a little bit more in line, 72% for Fate of the Furious and 82% for Furious 7. Um, that said, Hobbs and Saw had an A- minus, and then uh, Fate of the Furious had an, a, uh, had an A. So this is a little bit below that with the B-plus cinema score. Uh, overall, Hobbs and Saw had a 58% drop in its second weekend and, and ended up having a 2.9x multiplier for $173 million domestic, while Fate of the Furious saw a 61% drop heading into the 2.3x multiplier for uh, $225 million lifetime, obviously off of the higher total uh, starting opening weekend. In order to beat Hobbs and Saw, uh, F9 would either have a multiplier uh, at 2.5x so uh, because it has you know a lower uh, a lower total it's going to need to uh, I think be a little bit uh, better than a 58% drop probably closer to 55 or 50% drop in order to stand a chance uh, moving on to second place, we have Acquired Place 2, making $6.1 million in its uh, fifth weekend at 3,124 theaters, a 32% drop and a per theater average of $1,983. The massive total sits at $136 million. Internationally, it's made $96.5 million for a lifetime total of about $233 million. In third place, we have The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, dropping a fairly steep 57% in its second weekend in 3,361 theaters to $4.8 million for per theater average of $1,443. The message total sits at $25.8 million. Definitely does not look like it's going to catch up to where its predecessor was. Um, abroad, it's made $6.7 million for a lifetime total of $32.5 million. In fourth place, Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, made $4.7 million in 3,331 theaters, a stellar 22% drop to a per theater average of $1,433, and a message total of $28.7 million in its first third weekend. Uh, with an international take of $78.9 million so far, it's made just north of $107 million, crossing that $100 million mark. Now, rounding out our top five, we have Cruella hanging in there with $3.8 million in its fifth weekend, a $1,349 per theater average for 2,820 theaters, and a stellar 21% drop over last weekend. The massive total so far is $71.3 million, and with $112 million from abroad, it now sits at $183.8 million lifetime. Out of the top five, there are a couple other interesting things happening as well. Uh, in seventh place, Warner Brothers in the Heights dropped 47% after it lost about a third of its theaters, over a th over 1,100. Um, I talked last episode how you know the other HBO Max film, uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead, underperformed in theaters. It was eventually dropped by a similar number of theaters in its third weekend of about 1,000 1, theaters. So it looks like that repeated itself here, uh, with Warner's minimum booking to be about two weeks before theaters can choose to dump the film if it's not performing that well. Also a bit weird is in ninth place, uh, the Bob Odenkirk film Nobody, which came out you know a little bit ago, saw up 3,390% uh, versus last week, despite losing over half its theaters, down to only 110 total. That means for its uh, per theater average of 560000 uh, for out of $560,000 was $5,091. Now that's pretty broken, uh, 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 until, until you realize that, no, that actually was the case where Universal, because they distributed both this film and Fast and the Furious ended up having a double features uh, for you know, nobody and the Fast and the Furious. So people who went to the to the movie to the drive-in to watch uh, Fast to watch Fast and the Furious ended up also buying a ticket for nobody to help you know push their numbers a little bit higher up. And then in 11th place, you know, we have a bit of a curiosity, Werewolves Within from IFC Films. That by itself isn't a crazy box office performance, only, you know, $250,000 in 270 theaters. But the fun fact here is that it's actually based on a VR game of the same name for the Oculus Rift. So that's pretty dope that VR games are now getting film adaptations. 
Overall, domestic box office was just shy of $100 million at $98.6 million this week, again, the highest of the pandemic. Uh, we definitely could have gotten there, I think, if Toronto and Ontario weren't closed down until the end of July. Uh, we're going to be up from seven films from at over $1 million uh, this weekend, uh, from last weekend to eight, eight this weekend. Uh, Spirit Untamed barely squeaked in there. Uh, this coming weekend, we have two or three films opening wide. Uh, we have Universal's The Boss Baby 2, which is com coming out day and date on Peacock for paying subscribers. Uh, Box Office Pro has its uh, three-day opening weekend forecast for about $20 million total. And then we have The Forever Purge, the last film in that franchise, supposedly. Um, you know uh, That one's going to be uh, in theaters only, and Box Office Pro has their forecast at $13 million. Um, now, looking, and then, you know, uh, and then we also have Searchlight's uh, Sundance winning documentary, Summer of Soul, which is coming out both on Hulu and in select theaters. Uh, we don't have a forecast for that one. Um, though I'm definitely going to be checking out on Hulu, I think uh, Questlove always does great work. Uh, it is, you know, it is the Fourth of July weekend with the holiday taking place on the weekend itself. And the last, uh, instead of being, you know, in the middle of the week, uh, the last time that this happened was in 2014 and 2015, and we saw a 27 percent drop in total box office take from the week prior. So I would expect, you know, total box office to be similarly impacted here, uh, especially against the first Fourth uh, of July weekend, post-pandemic weekend, safely have barbecues and such. So looking ahead a week past the past though, bat that to the ninth, we have the next big film with Black Widow debuting from the MCU and Disney, of course. Of course, also on Premiere Access. Um, the above expectation uh, performance of F9 has people uh, rounding up their estimates of uh, opening weekend of Black Widow from uh, about $10 million or so. Most people had it at, you know, maybe 75 to $80 million. And now they're saying, you know, $90 million, even $100 million on play based on uh, pre-sales, uh, which are about in the 80 to $90 million range. So, um, yeah, we're going to have to see how and it's all psyched out, especially with Premiere Access going on. But it's going to be in two weeks from now. Uh, looking internationally, another Disney film uh, to worth mentioning is Luca, which again opened only in theaters and 12 markets where Disney Plus was not available. Currently sits at $11.6 million uh, worldwide. Um, the Conjuring film costs $100 million internationally, $160 million lifetime, including domestic. Um, in Korea, we have a local film, Hard Hit, for the highest grossing local film of the year with $3 million opening weekend. And then in France, there's actually a new law that coming into effect this week, uh, starting July 1st. Um, as of right now, the streaming window for films is three, a minimum of three years. That means films can't come to can't come to streaming after being sold in theaters for 36 months, which is why Cruella is not a day and date release on Disney Plus over there, and why Netflix films generally don't compete at Cannes. Uh, that being said, the new law that's coming into effect says that the window will drop to 12 months in order to fight piracy. Supposedly, the catch there is that studios will need to contribute 25% of local profits to the French film industry to take advantage of this. So I don't see this being particularly effective. What has been effective, though, is France's recovery um, from the pandemic, even with capacity limits. Comscore reporting that their weekend of June 20th had more total admissions compared to the same weekend back in 2018 and even 2019. So, yeah, definitely uh, definitely looks like France is bouncing back really strongly. And again, over in ca Canada, uh, which is, you know, I guess domestic technically, but whatever, uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, while screening films virtually for press and film execs who won't be able to travel there, will be planning on having in-person screenings for competition, including films like Belfast from Kenneth Branagh, Last Night in Soho from Edgar Wright, and Jagged, the Alanis Morissette documentary, with Dune from local filmmaker Dennis Villeneuve getting a special IMAX screening. 
Hopping over to China, uh, it's a bit of a light week ahead of the July 1st Communist Party 100-year holiday. Um, Nationalist film celebrating the 100-year celebration in uh, 1921 took first place with $11.5 million in previews before their official release this coming week. Um, last week's number two film, Man in Love, uh, holds its position with 13% drop to $5.3 million for a lifetime total of $27.5 million in China. Uh, in third place, we have a new film, Musical Romance, The Love I Didn't Finish, Between Us, making $5 million in its first weekend. Peter Rabbit 2 takes fourth place with $3.4 million for a regional total of $21.9 million. And then rounding out the top five is last week's num- top number one film, On Your Mark, making $3.3 million after dropping 61% for a regional total of $16.2 million. Also worth pointing out there is that A Quiet Place 2 comes, uh, comes up on its one-month time in China, ending on its run at $38 million, just sort of the $40 million mark over there. Uh, one other bit of international news worth reporting on, uh, the Delta variant of COVID. Uh, while reportedly the Pfizer Moderna vaccines are effective against the, vac- the variant, up to 88% apparently, uh, the World Health Organization has put out a statement encouraging the return of people to wear masks and social distancing. Uh, with Israel, one of the countries with the most vaccinations for its population, uh, requiring masks after an outbreak there, and in the UK, pausing its theater reopenings on third Wednesday with its highest number of cases daily since Friday. Friday. Uh, given the U.S. has been about a month behind the U.K., I think we'll definitely have to keep an eye on as the story develops, and we'll see how this affects you know the mid-July uh, theater rollouts. Um, in May, the Delta variant only made up 2.7% of cases here in the States. It made up 10% last week, and now apparently this week is up to 20%. So um, it's primarily spreading through younger, unvaccinated kids who can't get yet the vaccine. Uh, so do what you need to do. This will be a PSA. Wear your masks. Be smart about it. Get the vaccine if you can. Um, here's to hoping this does not put a damper on the rest of the box office season or more broadly the recovery and reopening. Now, one last bit of news to talk about before I get into my review of In the Heights. Uh, Warner Brothers made some moves with their release schedule for the fall. Most urgently, uh, Dune moves off of its October 1st release date to October 22nd. That way, it's not between Venom and uh, 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 Let There Be Carnage on September 24th and No Time to Die on the 8th which has been really terrible for the film Uh, in order to not conflict with their Clint Eastwood neo-western film Cry Macho that was originally going to come out on the 22nd Warner Brothers moves that film to September 17th now against Clifford the Big Red Dog which why is that a thing from Paramount Uh, as well as Searchlight's The Eyes of Tammy Faye starring uh, Andrew Garfield Uh, in order to take advantage of the October 1st slot which they just vacated Warner moved their Sopranos prequel film Many Saints of Newark from September 24th to October 1st. Uh, This this definitely helps Dune out um, as it's now at least two weeks away from No Time to Die and has two weeks to breathe before Marvel's The Eternals. Um, That being said, it is now competing against a a bunch of other award favorites including Wes Anderson's Defense Dispatch, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho as well as 20th Century's animated film Ron's Gone Wrong and the new Jackass film from Paramount. Assuming nothing moves, I'm definitely going to be spending uh, pretty much all of my uh, AMC A-list, you know, uh, uh, reservations that week, uh, that weekend, in order to get uh, all of these new films. Uh, speaking of going into theaters, like I said last Friday, I did catch In the Heights while it was still in theaters before it uh, leaves shortly. Um, and say what you will about his box office performance, I really enjoyed it. Um, of course, I am a bit biased uh, as someone who's lived in New York for like seven years now. And one of the first trips I took to New York with my now wife was to Washington Heights, where Airbnb was. So I'm a big fan of musicals in general, uh, which just made, made, means that this is just hitting all my boxes. Um, the songs definitely come from Lynn Manuel Miranda, for better or for worse. You definitely see a lot of the same flows and songs structures and themes in the song as his later uh, hit film uh, or play Hamilton. 
Uh, on the choreography side of things, John M. Two did a great job capturing the dancing. I mean, what else would you expect from someone who directed the Step Up films and worked with dancers on the YouTube channel uh, Legion of Extraordinary Dancers? Uh, beyond that, I think the film probably does its uh, does the best at capturing the feel of both you know New York and the hot summer, uh, which I'm definitely feeling right now, um, as well as you know the feeling of set pieces on Broadway. Uh, while I'm actually feeling it's set on the play, like the best way to describe it is if you saw the live action Le Miss. For me, one of my big gripes with that film, among many other things, is that the set pieces just feel like they're a set piece, and it doesn't really take advantage of the full texture of being in a movie film. Uh, that being said, something about theater that's really enjoyable is kind of like the it's almost like it's another world where the real rules don't apply, right? And people burst into dance and song, um, and everyone's like a little bit more emotive. Emotions come out a little bit louder in songs, and um, that and and other musicals, but I can't really point to one specifically right now. But other musicals just tend to lose that nature of it. I guess like Sound of Music might be a, one of these where like it does a good job of putting us in the world that the film takes place in. But it still definitely feels like it's in the world, and the musical stuff doesn't really feel like larger than life to a certain degree. So um, I think uh, In the Heights really does probably the best job I've seen of actually towing that line. Um, now, if there is a quibble I have with the film, it's probably on the de- plot and characterization side of things. The acting wasn't bad per se, despite being a bunch of you know mostly unknown lead actors, but I think the writing was a bit overstuffed here. Like, the romances in the film just felt super underdeveloped. Like, they... You, like I think again, back in, in in theater, right? You're supposed to get an impression that oh, this someone is in love with somebody else, their relationship is developing. You get it through like random lines in songs, right? But that doesn't really translate well to film per se. Um, where in film, you really want to see more tangible things to develop a relationship and develop the feelings between people. And kind of that progress, you know, is kept through here again, mostly through the through the song lyrics. Um, so that didn't really translate, I think, to a, a meaningful romance in either of the situations. Uh, in particular, it sounds like the uh, reading reading the original um, the re- original synopsis on Wikipedia of the play. So for Benny and Nina's uh, relationship, some other elements were taken out, probably to update the film to be a little bit more uh, contemporary. But yeah, I think that that's that's one thing that that I'm I'm going to ding it for. And the, on the on the other side, I think the conflicts in the film, you know, about the gentrification of Washington Heights, about the intergenerational misunderstanding regarding college and so on. On stage, again, it's easy to really balance multiple thread lines and multiple plot motivations and character motivations but it's really hard to do that in film when you're just relying on song um, so yeah that, that's definitely like again not as not fully satisfactory resolutions I think there um, and then you know adding in they also added in another completely original political uh, thread point about dreamers um, and undocumented uh, immigrants and you know that definitely uh, didn't really help with the runtime like this is a two and a half hour film that just Way too long, I think. I don't think they cut out any songs, to my knowledge. Again, I didn't see the original here. Um, so, you know, they kept everything in there. It definitely feel again, better or worse, it feels like a Broadway play um, while still being in the real world. But, you know, it comes with all the pros and cons of that, including kind of being a little bit of a longer endeavor to have to deal with. So, uh, overall, I give In the Heights a 4 out of 5 for me. Um, partly because of my personal biases. Um, it's probably close to a 3.5 or a 3 if you really care about the plot. More like a 4.5 uh, if you're really into the spectacle of it all. Um, call it Chacha Land, if you will. Uh, anyway, if you do want to see this, make sure you catch it uh, in theaters before it leaves the theater near you. Um, uh, or if you have HBO Max, catch it you know, in the next couple of weeks before it gets pulled from the service after, as it's going to leave there after the first month in theaters. 
And with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Suit me ideas for what I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find our show on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review or at the very least tell a friend any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which lets me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts that I work on. Links to all of that will be in our show notes. Uh, numbers used in the show come from thenumbers.com. Our intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmaster.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. Stay cool, everyone. And remember, our watch goes on. Oh,